Well, good evening, and welcome to our Sunday evening study. And tonight, beginning a, a brand new study on how we got the Bible. And as I said this morning, it has been a long time coming, the sense ever since the end of Mark's gospel. Again, to chapter 16, it has that special ending, the longer ending, and then the even longer ending, and how all these questions surrounding it, does this belong in the Bible? Where did this come from? Why do some Bibles have it, some Bibles don't? And if you remember that discussion or that sermon, gave you a little introduction, like a one-sermon summary of well, how it got in there and just uh, what happens with manuscripts and texts and so forth. And I know it would produce a lot of questions, which aren't good questions, as to well, how, how did the Bible come to be? How did it get into our hands today? So that has been the uh, inspiration for this study for a while now. It hasn't been able, haven't been able to get to it quite as quickly as I wanted, but here we are. So that's, that, that'll do. Let me uh, open up the word of prayer, and then we will jump right in. Our gracious God, we pray this evening that you reveal yourself to us in your word, and, and the authority of Scripture speaks loud and clearly, or we know that your word needs no defense. It can defend itself just fine, and uh, at the same time, Lord, we pray you still illumine our minds to behold Scripture as your word, and that we see how, how reliable, how truthful, how accurate and authoritative it is. Encourage us, build us up during this time, and, and may we learn many things that build up our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible, it's the most printed and the most accessible book in history. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. Go to any bookstore and you'll find multiple copies of it in multiple translations. Even it's at the 99 cent store now in the, the Dollar Tree, you've got a section of Bibles. You go to almost any hotel room, you open the drawer, you'll find a Bible. It's there for free. It doesn't say you shouldn't take it. If you wanted, you could probably take it. I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Go to just about any home in America, and you'll find a Bible too. In fact, in many homes, you might find more than one collecting dust on the shelves, perhaps in some people's homes. But in a really amazing way, ever since the invention of the printing press, the Bible has just exploded, and it really has circled the globe. There are millions, if not, I'd say, billions of copies printed by now that are all over the place. The accessibility to God's Word, it really is profound. Before the printing press, you didn't have a personal copy of the Bible. Oftentimes, they would be chained to the pulpit, and there would be one master copy in, in a local church or an area, and that's it. You had to go to hear it even read. You didn't have access. Or you didn't just look it up. There's, there's nothing to look up. You need your pastor, or you need your priest if you're in the, the Catholic church back then. The accessibility really is profound to think about. It. And in fact, the printing press was a revolution. That changed civilization, certainly changed access, accessibility to the Bible, right? In the past 20 years, there's been another equally profound revolution. Do you know what it is? The Internet. With accessibility to Scripture, it's taken it to another level that before you couldn't imagine it. Uh, but now it's, it's everywhere. Now, most people, they carry around every translation of the Bible in, in every language uh, in their phone. Just in their pocket, you have access to everything ever writ written or printed about the Bible. It's just all there, and you can pull it up essentially instantaneously. Now you can even just speak into your phone in many cases, and it will just pop up whatever you want. You can search the whole thing. The Bible study tools at the tip of your fingers, just basically anything you would want. In a split, sec 
excuse me, in a split second, you have access to the whole Bible. I mean, just who uses the phone on, or rather the, the Bible on their phone at all, just even every now and then? You go into it and you see the translations. How many translations are listed? It's just like 100. And most of them you just disregard, like never heard of this, never heard of this, never heard of this. You go to just one or two. That, that being said, we'll talk about translations later. It might even make you wonder, like, well, what are all these tra- translations? Why do we have so many translations? We'll, we'll get to that. But the point I'm making is that there's been another leap in accessibility in the Bible, and it's a good thing. It, it is a good thing. The more accessible the Bible is, the better. I mean, think about the Gideons, the guys who put the, the Bibles in the hotels. we got one of them in our church. They, their mission is to distribute the Bible to as many people as possible, putting in hotels, campuses, fairs, just passing them out, giving them out for free. Why? Why are they doing that? What's, what's the point? And why do other people, not just the Gideons, but others, churches and Christians, why are they so concerned with mass printing and mass distributing the Bible? Why? Well, because they're convinced that the Bible is God's book, that they are convinced that is the word of God. Therefore, everybody needs to know what God has said. That actually makes perfect logical sense. Even if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, that's quite logical. If someone is convinced that the Bible is God's word, well, you you should be distributing or giving it out or or helping people come to know about it or just overall just encouraging its distribution. If God has really spoken and his words have really been recorded in a book, everybody should read that book. Don't you think like that? No wonder the Bible is is the number one bestseller. At least people know it it claims to be the word of God. And everyone, if it's true, everyone should know what God has said. seems pretty important. And that's the claim of Christianity regarding the Bible. That the Bible is the very word of God. It's what God has revealed authoritatively to, to mankind. It's everything he wants us to know. But is that true? Is that really so? Is the Bible really God's word? For a couple hundred years now, that claim has been thrown into doubt by some for various reasons. Some people simply have an anti-supernatural bias. They, they discount the existence of God from the get-go. And so, of course, the Bible's not the word of God. There's no such thing. It's just, at best, it's the, the misguided religious and cultural musings of some ancient guys, ancient men. And, and that's it. It's like all religious documents. It's just philosophy basically of men, but there's nothing to it. It's not the word of God. But even among theists, people who do believe in God, the Bible still gets cast in doubt. The antiquity of the Bible is a stumbling block for some people. Even if it can be granted that, okay, let's just say, yeah, God really did speak to some people and they wrote down God's message in a book or in a, in a parchment. Even if that can be granted, that was a long time ago, and no one disputes that. I mean, it's at least New Testament 2,000 years, Old Testament roughly 3,500 years. So is it even possible for the Bible to have been preserved that long? I mean, even if God originally said something to a guy named Moses, for example, what are the odds that we still really have it, that it hasn't been lost or altered or, or whatever? In fact, to the contrary, some argue that the Bible has not been perfectly preserved, but it's been <coughs> excuse me, changed and modified several times such that what we read today, it's not really what was originally written. 
And of course, that would be a problem. That would spell trouble if the Bible really is God's book. Other questions arise surrounding what is included in the Bible. The Bible, as it exists today, consists of some 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. But you might know there are other ancient writings among the Jews, among the early Christians, that were well-known but didn't make it in to the Bible. You guys heard of some of these? And just for the fun of it, give me some titles. What have you heard? What books? Yeah, first, second Maccabees, Tobias, Gospel of Peter. It's like a gospel of everybody. Gospel of you know Thomas. Gospel of everybody, pretty much. Like I said, and then we'll we'll get to those. By the way, we'll we'll study some of those things. But there's all these other writings. Why didn't they make it into the Bible? Who's to say that such books were not a part of God's message to man? How is man to judge such a thing at all? Some will say that the Bible was merely created by a committee voting on books they thought were best. Is is that true? How were books included or excluded from the canon, the the scriptures, the, the collection of God's authoritative writings? Is it possible that we've missed out on some genuine words of God or we've included things that shouldn't be there? All these questions lead to the ultimate question of this study, and that is, how did we get the Bible? How did we even get the Bible? And if you answer that fully, you answer all these other questions. Can we have any assurance that the Bible we hold in our hands so easily today is really the written word of God as originally given? Well, I'm here to tell you the answer to that question is yes, and the purpose of the study is to show you how, to show you how we can with confidence say yes and and say, yeah, it's been a couple thousand years, but what we have today with great confidence we can say is is what was written, given back then. So this is going to be a study here on Sunday nights of, simply put, how we got the Bible. I mean, sounds simple, and it, it hopefully will be simple, but also I'll take you into some depth as well. You should have confidence and trust in the Bible as the very written word of God. We would expect that if the Bible really is the word of God, God would have delivered and preserved his word. And this is something we can confirm. Of course, there's no stopping men from adulterating the word. Some have, making their own changes for their own purposes. It's, It's happened throughout history. For example, even today, there's nothing stopping someone from taking a Bible and translating it into the language of some tribal group that's never been contacted before and changing it, like radically even changing it, and then showing up to that tribal group and saying, this is the word of God. They would have no, no knowledge. They wouldn't know better. They'd just have to accept it based on that person's word. They wouldn't know that it's been changed. The difference, though, is we do know better. We can trace back how we got the Bible. <clears throat> and although some have changed it over the years, it, you know, for, for various reasons, some have either mistakenly or on purpose adulterated the word. We can trace that back as well. And furthermore, God's word itself reveals to us and authenticates its divine nature. And although, you don't have to take my word for it, just stick around in this study. We're going to go through bit by bit, step by step, as to how we got the Bible from then till now, from when it was written thousands of years ago to how it was copied and preserved and to how it gets into our hands today. We'll study each link in that chain and hopefully 
building your confidence with each step. <clears throat> now, for this evening, though, I think a, a good place to get started, you got to start somewhere, is with just a, a simple, basic introduction to the Bible itself. And we're setting how we got the Bible, and I know you all know about the Bible, but still, worthwhile to throw out a basic introduction to, to the Bible. The English word Bible comes from the Greek biblia, which means books. It was just a term for books, but over time it came to be a technical term for the, the collection of Jewish and Christian scriptures. The Bible came to be understood as a technical term for the holy books of the Judeo-Christian faith claiming to speak for God. Now, just about everybody knows the Bible is divided into two parts. Part one and part two, Old Testament and New Testament. Who knows what the word testament is, is really, what it really means, what it actually is translating, what word? Not gospel? Covenant. Just covenant. Old and new covenant. They relate to, it's just the, the translation for the Greek word for covenant. And so the Old and New Testament, there's a, a sharp division between the two, which is not going to surprise anyone here, revolves around a person, Christ. It's, it's really B.C., A.D., before Christ, after Christ, Old Covenant, New Covenant. God's dealings with man, and that's what the Bible talks about. God, it reveals God. It's God's self-disclosure of who he is, more than we can get from nature. We'll get to that later as well. <clears throat> it's God's self-disclosure to man, his relation to man, and we know fallen man and his plan of redemption. But that, that looks... Different in the sense, or there, there's differences between how God has revealed himself to man before Christ and after Christ. As we'll see, even Christ, he's the pinnacle of God's revelation. He is incarnate revelation. He's not written. He's living revelation of, of God. And so, needless to say, Scripture centers around Christ. It's divided around Christ into two halves, although the first half is a lot longer. <coughs> Excuse me. The central figure of Scripture is, of course, God, revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son, like I was saying, Jesus, he's the greatest expression of God's revelation to man, and so he's the centerpiece. All of Scripture can be seen pointing to Christ. The Old Testament, in so many ways, pointing forward to the Christ, and the New Testament revealing him. Let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament, the books of the Old Testament. They're arranged primarily by subject matter. You can look at your handout now. Just so, a side note, for Sunday nights, I'm not going to give you super detailed handouts, namely like all of my notes per se, but I'll, I'll try and give you um, the verses. So you don't have to write down all the verses and just kind of the stuff you would want to have as notes, but don't have to tediously write down. So just to point that out. <clears throat> but if you're wondering about the organization of the Bible, it's good to get familiar with. In fact, I would challenge you all, even tonight, to, to begin, if you haven't already, to memorize all the books of the Bible. Every Christian should get there some days. It doesn't make you any more righteous, but it's just good to have that in your belt, to, to, to know the books of the Bible, quickly reference them. The, the organization of the Bible is not inspired. That's not something we'll be studying. It, it, it has, the organization has changed over time. That's not a big deal, how they're arranged. So the Hebrews... Back in the day, they arranged it differently than we do today, and that's no big deal. Just when the, when the Hebrew Old Testament, which has, it's the same content, it's the same 39 books. Some books were combined, like we say 1st and 2nd Samuel. Back then it was just Samuel. 
we have 12 minor prophets, 12 different books. They had just one book called The Twelve, and it was The Twelve Minor Prophets. So stuff like that. But in the second century B.C. in Alexandria, that's when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the, who knows, Septuagint. Or you might see that the word LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70, because there were 70 Masoretes responsible for, for making that translation. Uh, anyway, and at that time, they, they basically arranged it in the custom of the day, which is how we know it today. And you could call it the Greek translation or the Greek arrangement. And it's, it's more topical. It's more by subject matter. So hey, just for the fun of it, look at that handout, and I'll, we'll go over it real quick. So the Old Testament, the earliest division, the Old Testament was, it was a two-fold division. You have the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And you know Christ sometimes or some New Testament writers, they would refer to the whole Old Testament with a twofold division, right? The Law and the Prophets. At the same time, around the time of Christ, there was a threefold division that was becoming more used, the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets, just to distinguish those books in between, like, you know, Job or, or something like that, or, or the Psalms, that weren't prophetic like Isaiah, but they, they didn't really fit with the Law either. So you have the law, the writings, the prophets, the threefold classification still pretty common today. But at the same time, you could also use a, a five-fold division. Just, this is just helping you get familiar with the Bible a little bit more. Five-fold division is pretty good because it, it breaks apart these books and shows you how it was put together. You see the five-fold division reflected in that, that translation uh, of the Septuagint back in the day. So the first five books are known as the Law or the Torah. And that is just the the first revelation of God that the books of Moses um, that God gave, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when when Jews or even in the New Testament, when they speak of the law as a a technical term, they're referring to that the first five books, basically, that this was their law, their Torah, their, their primary Bible. But they accepted other books. Later, Revelation was added to this canon, this Old Testament canon, which we'll, we'll get there. And so over time, you see these other books added, how they're organized. The next section is, <coughs> pardon me, yeah, I'm, I'm almost done with the cough, with my lingering sickness. The, the next section is really the history books that, that they are chronological for the most part here, which is nice because you start reading the, the Bible and you'll get a, a roughly chronological track. Once you get after Esther, though, then no more chronology, really. But Joshua picks up where the books of Moses left off after the conquest, takes you through the conquest. Judges picks up after that, takes you to the time of the judges, Israel and the land for another 400 years. Ruth bridges the gap between the time of the judges and the times of the kings. And that's what 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles are all about. Samuel really chronicles David. It's, it's really all about David being the, the, the chief king of Israel, uh, who is such a central figure, as you know. And the 1st, 2nd Kings detail the, the subsequent queen, kings and the divided kingdom all the way to the, the fall of Israel. Chronicles written later is a parallel history written from a more optimistic viewpoint, but still covers the history of Israel. 
And then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther detail the time after the exile, after the return to the, from the exile, and takes Israel's history down to almost the end of the Old Testament, although it's not the last book written, pretty close. So the, that's a pretty straight, in a sense, straightforward historical section. You see how that's organized. Then you have five books that are often referred to as the poetic books or wisdom literature. They fit uh, what can be classified as wisdom literature of the time. And you think Proverbs, but to that we would add Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, written for the most part by Solomon. Um, Job, many believe, written by Moses, but could have been by, we actually don't know for sure who wrote Job. Psalms, many of which written by David. So that middle section, the, the poetic set, section, they're often set apart by its poetic parallelism in Hebrew. And then you get into the prophets, which have a twofold division, the major and the minor, simply by really their, their magnitude and their, and their length. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel being the major, and then you've got the 12 minor prophets. So this gives you just a little organization and background to the Old Testament. The prophets, what I would encourage you to do if you really want to get to know the prophets better is use your phone. Download one of those reading plans, a chronological Old Testament reading plan that even inserts the prophets chronologically. So basically, it's like reading through 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and each time you get to the prophets, you read the prophet. So you get what I'm saying? It just kind of inserts the prophetic writings in their actual timeline, because otherwise they jump all over the place. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see how they fit chronologically. But okay, that's just a little background to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written almost entirely in Hebrew. A few sections were in Aramaic, which is a very related language. Together, these 39 books, they span roughly 1,000 years from roughly 1400 B.C., that would be the books of Moses, to 400 B.C., Malachi, the last one written. There are about 30 authors coming from all walks of life, prophets, judges, kings, shepherds, and so on. Quite a diverse group. So that's a little bit about the Old Testament. New Testament, if you look at the New Testament now, it is also not arranged chronologically. It is also arranged by basically subject matter and authorship. But you see there's a rough flow. The Gospels, it begins with the four Gospels, which chronicle the life of Jesus. That's a perfect starting point. That's what sets the New Testament apart. It is the revelation of and about the Christ. So you have the four Gospels detailing the life of the Messiah. It continues with one history book, per se, and that would be Acts, which is the chronicles of, of the early church after the Messiah. Then you have uh, 13 books after that, the letters to the early church, or 13 of, of Paul, and then you have the general epistles. The, the epistles, which is that, that huge bulk middle section of, of the New Testament. It's like the instruction manual for the church, and it can be broken up into two categories, the Pauline epistles and the general epistles. You know that Paul wrote just a lion's share, 13 of them, depending on whether or not you include Hebrews with Paul. I don't. Um, but Romans through Philemon, Paul's letters to the churches, basically telling them how, how to live in light of Christ and expounding on the doctrine of, of Christ and so forth. And then the general epistles arranged by authorship, Hebrews, James, 
Peter's books, John's books, Jude. And then lastly, there's one prophetic book, and that is Revelation. So in a way, you can see the law paralleling the Gospels, the history books paralleling one another, that the, the wisdom and the epistles, and then the prophetic books paralleling one another. There is a, a kind of parallelism to how the, the Testaments are organized. The New Testament was written in Greek, spanning about 50 years from roughly 40 A.D., James, to about 90 A.D., that would be Revelation. There were nine authors, similarly coming from various walks of life. You've got a tax collector, you've got a doctor, you've got several fishermen, and so forth. Well, put together, you put the whole Bible together, then you have a pretty substantial composition. It's a compilation book. You have about 40 authors writing 66 books over the span of 1,500 years. And what's so profound is the amazing consistency and fluidity of the Bible. The theology is the same. There's a unity that, that really cannot be explained apart from divine intervention. I mean, just, just try and get 40 authors today to write 66 books and paint the same picture of God and the same theology, the same flow, and it, it won't happen. Make that over 1,500 years. And how much changes over 1,500 years, yet we have such a consistent view of this God. This God doesn't change. His character, his deeds are, are so consistent, it is uh, remarkable. Every culture around the world conceives of God differently, shaping God into its own image. No two cultures agree, certainly not over 1,500 years, yet the 66 books of the Bible reflect the same God, same character, same plan, same revelation, um, it, it's just it's a profound unity to the Bible among the diversity of its composition. And this is why that that in itself has compelled many people to believe the Bible is the word of God. And I'll tell people, hey, read it for yourself. Right? That, that's a good way to go about it. Just, well, you, you know the claim is there. Why don't you read it for yourself? In fact, let's transition now. So that's just a basic, basic introduction to the Bible just to get you started. Let's talk about the claim. We're not going to get into deep stuff tonight. Tonight's our introduction to the study overall. We'll begin next week getting into the, the nitty-gritty and just going into the links of the chain. But let's talk about the claim of the Bible. That, that needs to be covered because why are we even doing this? Why are we even studying this? Who cares how you got the Bible? What's the big deal? Why all the fuss? Every year, thousands of books are published. So why aren't we worried about those books? Why, why all the attention and focus on the Bible? Well, I know it's obvious, but the difference is that the Bible claims to come from God. The Bible claims to speak for God. That, that's a big deal. Just about every other book doesn't do that, and the few today that do are, are quickly discounted. Now, there are some other ancient religious texts, as you know, that likewise make that claim to speak for God, to be the revelation of God. So the major world religions all have their historical text. And our intent here is not going to be to study those other claims. That would be a worthwhile study. We'll save that for some other time, doing apologetics. That would be good. But we want to focus on the claims of the Bible, <coughs> Excuse me, which undoubtedly has made the greatest impact on world history. That, that's not up for debate. I mean, that's just a fact of, of history. The Bible has impacted and shifted and changed and shaped world history 
more than any other document, especially any other claiming to speak for God. And so it's fair to ask at least, why have so many people come to believe the Bible is God's word? Of course, if the claims are true, that changes everything. It means if the Bible really is God's word, then it means the Bible is really by definition the absolute authority on on life. And all people should order their lives around what it says. That just comes by way of God's authority. If If God really spoke and it's preserved, then it still carries God's full authority. That changes everything. And throughout the study on how we got the Bible, we'll be examining the claims of the Bible's divine authorship, notably when we get to the inspiration of Scripture. But just for tonight, by way of introduction, I think it would prove beneficial at least to study some verses, a sampling of the claims of Scripture to be a divine book. I mean, does the Bible even really claim to come from God? If not, we can just stop the study right now and just move on to something else or or go home. But, of course, it does, in fact, all over the place. At the very least, it's claiming consistently throughout the thing that this is God speaking. It's not just man. Humans are involved, and we'll, of course, get to that as well. But it's coming from God, being channeled through men. But the source is God. This is God's book and God's word. So let's spend a little time. Get on the other side of your handout some verses. We'll look at a few of these. And just a sampling of the claims of Scripture to be God's word. Now, off the bat, it should be noted about 3,800 times you have the phrase in the Bible, God said, or thus saith the Lord. So right there, you have 3,800 examples of the Bible claiming to come from God, that God is speaking. That's pretty overwhelming. (coughs) But how about a few specific passages? Two important passages we'll study in detail when we get to inspiration. We can read right now, though. Why don't you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a good place to start, 2 Timothy chapter 3. These prayer verses are pretty substantial when it comes to the the inspiration of Scripture. We're just going to read them for now, though, and save the details for later. The claims are clear, though. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed. It's coming from God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and, and so forth. The claim is clear. All scripture is inspired. Not half, not part of it. All scripture is inspired by God. You find another important claim in 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, we're going to move fast through these. I'm just just really building the simple case of of the claims of Scripture itself. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, another huge verse where Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Very substantial verse and into the the method of inspiration, how God inspired the word. How is it God breathed? He used humans. They're involved. But like I said, the source of the river is the mountain, is the rock. It is, is God himself. So those are two very 
prominent claims. Let's go back. So I mentioned the prophets. And that's, that's really a, a foundational element of how we got the Bible. What, what makes these books special? It's that they were written by prophets. Every author of every book of the Bible can be considered a prophet. We'll get into the details of that later. But they were men who claimed to speak from God, who said, thus saith the Lord. Every biblical author fits into the role of prophet or New Testament apostle or prophet with a slight distinction there with the ministry of Christ. But nonetheless, men claiming to speak with divine authority. And we can trace now to the Old Testament to display that. So let's do that. Go back to Exodus 4. We'll we'll sample. I'll read some of these and you can read some as well. Exodus 4. You got to start with the law, the Torah, the, the books of Moses, who was considered a prophet. In fact, their greatest prophet. The greatest mouthpiece for God, spokesman for God. And, you know, when, when Moses was commissioned, God basically said, hey, uh, you're just going to speak my words, basically. I, I'm calling you to give them my message. Moses was just like the intermediary. It was God's message, God's word to the people. And so would the law be. The law was God's word. Exodus 4.12, God says to him, now then go and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Many verses like that where Moses, he, he, he's like, I, I don't want to go. I don't know what to say. But God says, no, I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll do the talking. And even later, God appoints Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece, but it doesn't change. God's going to speak through him too. Verse 30 says, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. It, it, where's it coming from, though? Not coming from Aaron or Moses. It's coming from the Lord. And we find that the whole law is regarded as coming from God. <clears throat> a good place to point out is just the Ten Commandments, the law proper. Exodus 20, verse 1, they get to Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses up and gives them his word. Verse, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, and although Moses writes and records this and repeats this to the people, it, it's, it's God writing. These are God's words. Not Moses' words, but God's words. From the law, this, this immediately translates to the, the subsequent books of the Bible. So the law as a unit, even right away into Joshua. The same claim is made. The same understanding is made, even though it's no longer being written by Moses. So the great pro- prophet is dead and gone. But his immediate successor, Joshua, already picks right back up and has the same claim. He's speaking for God. Joshua 3.9, they crossed the Jordan. Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And then he goes on to, to speak to them. But that's, that's a bold claim that, that's made all over scripture. But think about it. These, these men, they're saying, hey, come listen to me. And in hearing me, what are you hearing? That the word of God, the words of God. They're men claiming to speak and then, of course, write the word of God, which is what Second Peter said they did, of course, under divine inspiration and, and guidance by the Holy Spirit. But these claims, at the very least, the claims, they're all over the place. I'll read for some of you now. Second Samuel 23, 2, David says, 
the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. He said that right before he, he recorded one of his psalms in Second Samuel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. He understood God was speaking by and through him. Second Kings 17.13 records that Israel fell because they ignored the warnings of God. It says, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets. They were speaking for God, but they were ignored. In fact, you see the references to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Almost every prophet in the Old Testament, go to any of the major or minor prophets, most of them begin with a claim to be speaking for God. Like Isaiah 1-2. Isaiah says, Listens, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And then he goes on to, to say what the Lord is saying. This is God speaking, not Isaiah. A message from God. Jeremiah 1-7. It says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah was specifically commissioned, like, you're going to go, but I'm going to speak. And then you just speak, or you speak from me, or through me, so to speak. Ezekiel, same thing, Ezekiel 1.3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. And he goes on just to give the message. <clears throat> so that you'll see that all throughout the prophets, men claiming to speak from God and for God. And the message they gave, being the word of God, was eternal. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of, the God, of our God stands forever. Even at the time it had been written and was starting to be collected, the, the written portion was authoritative. Isaiah 34:16. Isaiah tells the people, seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing, and he goes, goes on to speak about the subject matter. But the point is, they, the book of the law was already there and had God's authority. It was God's book. It was just it was what Moses said and wrote, but it was regarded as God's book. And so the whole scripture it came to have that claim. So if all this is true, there, there are some implications. If this, if this is God's book, it's going to carry some implications. And that even this is attested to in the Old Testament. For example, it's going to be authoritative because if it's coming from God, God doesn't lie, right? So Numbers 23 says, I didn't write that down. I better turn to it. You can join me, I guess, if you want. Numbers 23, verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God, being who he is, especially as he reveals himself in this book, is a God who does not change and does not lie, and his word carries his own authority. And so to disbelieve or disobey one of these prophets or their writings, that is equivalent to disbelieving or disobeying God himself. That's the authority vested in his word. It's so serious that God warns others not to come along and add to it or subtract from it. 
that says a lot about how God views his own word in the Bible. It's, it's, it's done. It, it's, it's written in stone, so to speak, and you don't add or subtract. And so he says in Deuteronomy 12, 32, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add nor take away from it. And there are other, a few other places in Deuteronomy and elsewhere where that uh, a warning is given. Don't add, don't subtract to God's word orally or written. You find the same thing in the end of the book of Revelation, as you know. And in Deuteronomy 18, I won't read that, but God takes his revealed word so serious that if someone else comes along and claims to speak for God, and anybody can do it, right? we still got crazy people like that who claim to speak for God. It's a bold claim, but anybody can make it. And God gave tests to authenticate these prophets, because that's a huge power, right? If you claim to speak for God, that's you've, that's quite a power. But if someone comes along and, and is shown to be a false prophet, what they say does not come true or does not accord with God's previous revelation, the penalty is death, the death penalty for false prophecy. That shows you how serious God takes his revealed word. So the Old Testament is chock full of these claims, claims that these are men, prophets, claiming to speak from God. It's at least claiming to be God's book all over the place. New Testament, (coughs) pardon me, not much different. You have Jesus and the apostles. Not only do they affirm the Old Testament as God's word, but they also make clear that their words as the apostles and prophets of the, the Christ era are similarly inspired, and a new revelation is being given. Jesus certainly viewed his own words that way. Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His own words are more eternal than creation. John 10, 34, 35, Jesus quotes a psalm, and he says, and he calls it the word of God. He says, Scripture cannot be broken. I think it was a psalm of Asaph that he quotes. And he says, it's the word of God. It can't be broken. His view of the Old Testament is stellar. We'll study that. A whole lesson we'll devote to Christ's view of Scripture. Really profound. Let's turn to a few of these. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus reveals a bit here about his view of the word. First off, Jesus came, and everything he said itself came from the Father. He himself was a mouthpiece of revelation. As we'll learn, he actually was incarnate revelation. But look at John 17, verse 8. He's praying to the Father and he says, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. Jesus came to speak the words of the Father and do the will of the Father. And he goes on to say in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word which Christ spoke and which was later written down, word of the Old Testament, anything God has said is truth. That's what you would expect if God really said it. Christ believed it. That God's word is truth and therefore the authority for our lives. 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul makes some similar statements. He says, not in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Paul believed his preaching, his message was from God. He spoke the word of God, and he actually viewed his own writings as the word of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where he says this. <coughs> 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. We'll even see later how Peter himself spoke of Paul's writings and called them, referred to them as, as scripture, understanding that the, the scripture was being expanded in, with the New Testament. And this makes sense. This is what is revealed in Hebrews, a pretty big verse on God's revelation. If, you, if you're fast, you can go to Hebrews 1, which is a summary of how God has revealed himself to us. Hebrews 1, 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. Now he spoke through his son. Christ himself commissioned his representatives to keep speaking after he was gone. That's the apostles and the prophets. And from that, we get the New Testament. So well, I think that's, that's enough right there. That's, at the very least, you can't dispute. You, you can't dispute that the Bible claims to be God's word. It's a substantial claim, though, because this is not just one book written by one person in one snapshot of time giving you one person's claim of, of divine authorship. This is, again, 66 books, 40, roughly 40 authors, 1,500 years, with the same claim and, and this consistency that is, is so amazing, as we'll see as that study unfolds. At the very least, it's a claim to be reckoned with. Do we accept this claim? Do we reject this claim? Hey, all the world religions, they have their books, Book of Mormon, Quran, the, the writings of the Hindus. They're mutually exclusive. They can't all be right. They, they paint a different picture of God, and if so, if God exists, well, they, they, they can't all be right. One of them is going to be right. The rest are going to be wrong. So, hey, worthwhile study to study all the, the scriptures of different religions. But we're going to start at least and stick in this study with the Bible. It, like I said, the most influential book in world history that it's changed the world over, undoubtedly. It makes strong claims. It's already unique in its composition. There's nothing like it. Quran, it's all the, just the, the revelation of, of God to Muhammad. It's one person, one point in time. There's nothing like this book and so it's worth wrestling with these claims. Is it true? Did it really come from God? And that's, that's what we're going to be studying from start to finish, from the Bible given to pass down 
to, to print it and translate it and put it in our hands today? Can we know it came from God? And even though it's been translated, can we still have confidence that it's God's word, that it has that same authority for our lives? And so I'll finish just summarizing the aim of this study, just giving you rounded out introduction. I want to mention, as we go through, this study, it's not designed to convince the unbeliever of the Bible as God's word per se. Now, God can use a study like this to do that, to convince the unbeliever, like, wow, it's pretty amazing when you study it all. But that's not our intention. That's not our design. Because faith, it's not based on evidences. You can't convince or argue someone into the faith. Saving faith comes as the Spirit of God brings the gospel of Christ to bear on a person's life, and God opens their eyes to believe. That's how God changes people. And when God gets a hold of someone, they're going to believe the Bible comes from God. They're going to see the fingerprints of God all over Scripture. And the Scriptures will open up to them in an amazing way. Many of you have shared testimonies that maybe you grew up in the church, but you weren't really saved. You read the Bible. It didn't make any sense. It's like, I don't get this. It's just, I'm supposed to read it, but it's just, it's just an old book and it's nothing. But then you came to a genuine salvation. You came to truly understand God and the gospel and you believed and many have testified the Bible is just, wow, it opens up. It just, it totally makes sense. It speaks to me. It, it, it all fits together. I get it now. And, and it's just a whole different ballgame. And, and rightly so, because the Spirit of God must work to lift the veil from blinded eyes and to reveal God and his word for what it is. So we, we hold that truth. And although, like I said, God can work through evidences as a means to bring someone to a point of believing the gospel. That's not our intention here. So this is not primarily a study in apologetics as if we're trying to convince the unbeliever. Instead, the goal of this study is more oriented toward equipping and encouraging believers, people who already believe. This is the greater value of studying evidences for the faith as well as historical proofs. And so we're going to look at evidence for the Bible, historical proofs, And I see the greater benefit of evidences, which is a valid study. I think the greater benefit is not per se to be used in apologetics, although you can. I think the greater benefit is just to encourage believers because you can have doubts. You can be tempted by the unbelieving world around you and uh, endless list of scholars who will say the Bible is not from God. It's full of errors. It's been changed. It's so on and so forth. Go down the list and especially for a young believer who doesn't know much, that can shake their faith. And look, if this is the foundation, right? This is obviously the foundation of the Christian faith. If this is wrong, it's over. Forget about it. I don't want to waste my time with just some fairy tale. And if, if this can be eroded, if, if a sinkhole can form under this foundation, that's dangerous and that's a problem. So if there's threats to the foundation, attacks, on the foundation, I want to I wanna study, I want to defend it, I want to see if it's true, and if it is, be ready to defend it and, 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 and uphold it. So this is a study on the foundation of Scripture itself, how we got the Bible. That's about as foundational as you can get. But like I said, the aim is to encourage you and equip you that you can rest assured in your confidence of Scripture and make a defense, if need be, and... Uh, Hey, some people are 
really into evidence is it still can be used where you can use it as a testimony of, at the very least, hey, the Bible is profound in its testimony. Fingerprints of God are all over this thing. So that's our goal. We're going to examine both scripture and history to discover how we got the Bible as it is today. This study will be broken up into five parts, representing five links in the chain from how the Bible was just given to written to, to how we got it to today. And so you'll see this in your notes in the upcoming weeks, but I'll just mention them now. The five parts of the study are revelation, inspiration, canonization, transmission, and translation. I'll do that one more time and break it down. It starts with revelation. Revelation is the first step where God reveals himself to man. You have revelation in nature, general revelation, and that's, that's great, but we're talking about special revelation where God reveals himself in a way we could not otherwise know, and he does, th- does so through people, through prophets, through men. And so this is the first link. God first reveals something about himself, his word, his will. That's step one, revelation. Step two is inspiration, where those men of God took God's revelation and at some point wrote it down. And that's obviously, we're concerned about the Bible, which is a written document. It's not an oral document. It is written in, in, a, in language, in human language. So the second step is how, how did that come? How did it go from an oral, or actually God spoke in many ways, dreams, visions, and so forth. We'll talk about how he revealed himself. But however he did it, eventually they wrote it down. It all came to be written down. And so how, how does that work? And how, was it done free from error? How, how, how did that happen? What does that mean? That's inspiration. How God's revelation was recorded without error. So that will be the second part, study of inspiration. The third part then is canonization. The word canon referring to the authoritative collection of, of books. Canonization, that, that's how all the different parts, because it's a compilation. It's not one person, one time. It's, like we said, many. So how they were recognized and collected. We'll make a big point of this later, but humans do not determine books of the Bible. We don't determine canonicity. We recognize inspiration. We recognize the books that have been inspired. We don't determine them. We simply recognize them. I'll make that distinction clearer as we get into it later. But canonization is the study of how the different works of the different authors were assembled, collated, brought together into an authoritative canon that was recognized very early on and and passed down the ages. So that's how the collection was made. The next step is called transmission. Another way of putting that, if you want an alternate word, is preservation. It's how God's revelation was copied and disseminated because it, it never was just one copy. I mean, it started with one copy, but for many reasons, it had to be duplicated. The king of Israel was to have his own copy. There's a copy in the in the Ark of the Covenant. It's copied for, for priests later on and, and disseminated, and that's all good. Of course, anytime you copy it, there is a potential for error. And so transmission... For a lot of you, that's probably what you want to get to. You, this, that's really the, what has all the questions you want answered, like about 
the manuscripts. You know, the end of Mark, remember that sermon from the end of Mark? That was like a summary of transmission, how the Bible was copied and preserved and disseminated and how we can study what we have to, to get back to the original Bible. Because, yes, copies of a copy of a copy, like, like that game of telephone, errors can creep in, but we can trace them back with amazing accuracy. That will get technical. That might challenge some of you, but I'll try and really break it down to help you see how the Bible was preserved from then till now and to antiquity. And the last step, of course, is translation. Because, hey, it's all good that the Bible was disseminated in, in Hebrew and Greek. It's really great for the ancient world, but we don't speak Hebrew and Greek that much anymore. And so how it was translated into many other languages and even into English and what the, what the whole process of translation means for the Bible. In short, any copy or any translation to the degree that it's faithful to the original, it is the word of God. <coughs> Pardon me. And so I can say with great confidence that, that the English translation we use today is God's word. It is a faithful translation of the original. But especially at a church like this, this is why we believe pastors, preachers, teachers should be trained in the original languages. This is why I had to learn Hebrew and Greek in seminary, that I could go back to the original copies of the manuscripts we have to, to wrestle with the original to, to get even more precise because the translation is is faithful, accurate, usable, uh, but there are times we want to cut it real, real narrow. We want to really slice that straight and Going back to the originals is beneficial for that. But we'll get into all that in, in, time to, in time to come. Revelation, inspiration, canonization, transmission, and translation. You put those together and you have the Bible from when it was originally given, all 3,500 3, years later into our hands today. And so by studying each links in this chain, you'll see how each one is, is strong. And you put them all together and you have a, a strong case or witness to how we got the Bible and that is uh, reliable to how it was originally given. And all this, like I said, to encourage believers and edify believers in their own confidence in the Bible that, that they hold in their hands. That you can take your English translation with great confidence and read it as the word of God. The authority for your life to know God, to find God, to serve God from the Bible you hold in your hands. So that's where we will be going starting next week. Next week we'll get back, we'll do we'll begin into Revelation. Each of these five sections will take several weeks. You know how I do it, right? I'm not too short winded about anything. But each of these will take several weeks and uh, we'll just go one by one. So we'll come back next week and get right into Revelation. Should be good. Any uh, questions? Okay, very good. We'll get this Introduction in the book, so I'll pray, we'll close our time out, and we'll, we'll really get into it starting next week. Well, let me pray. Our God in heaven, we are very grateful for our time. Your word is truth, we confess along with uh, our Lord. Your word is truth, and we pray you sanctify us in your truth. It really needs no convicting, Lord, or convincing rather, once you you shown the light of the gospel on our hearts and, and opened our eyes to understand the gospel. Uh, the Bible spoke to us. This internal testimony the Holy Spirit made clear, this is your word. At the same time, Lord, there are not a few 
who would seek to poke holes in the Bible as your word. And so it's worthwhile for us to be encouraged, to be edified, to study where it came from, how it came to be, how we got it. And through this study, Lord, in the weeks to come, I pray you, you do encourage us, you do build us up, that we can come to you with great confidence and, and open the pages of the Bible in our hands to know you and to serve you. Without it, we lose everything. With it, we have everything. So give us a great time of learning in this study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.